Welcome to the Compliance 911 Show, a no-nonsense podcast discussing hot topics for today's busy compliance professional. It's everything you wanted to know about regulatory compliance, but we're afraid to ask. And now, here are your hosts, Dean Stockford of M&M Consulting and Len Suzio of Geodata Vision. Welcome to our podcast series addressing everything you wanted to know about regulatory compliance, but we're afraid to ask. I'm Dean Stockford from M&M Consulting, and I'm joined today by Len Suzio, President CEO of GeoDataVision. So Len, what topics do you want to touch upon today? Well, Dean, we've had several podcasts regarding redlining, especially in light of the Department of Justice's, quote, combating redlining initiative that was announced back in October 22nd of 2021. I think it's appropriate to discuss that topic once more today because in my opinion, it represents the greatest regulatory compliance risk faced by banks today. Only a couple months ago in a speech at Seton Hall University uh, in April, this is the year 2023 we're speaking about, the Assistant Attorney General proclaimed that during 2022, the year immediately after the initiative was proclaimed, the DOJ received a record number of redlining referrals from bank regulators. So in light of the unprecedented emphasis by the DOJ and bank regulators on this topic, I thought it appropriate to remind bankers of the serious threat this may be to their institutions. I say this not because I believe there is widespread redlining being practiced by banks. By the way, contrary to the accusation by the Attorney General in the Combating Redlining Initiative press release, in which the Attorney General proclaimed that redlining was not a practice just in the past, but is, quote, widespread today. So I'm, I'm emphasizing it but because there's a growing body of evidence indicating that regulators are abusing the concept of REMAs, reasonably expected market areas, to expand a bank's CRA assessment area way beyond the practical market it can reasonably be expected to serve, which, of course, is the guiding principle for CRA assessment areas. Consequently, Dean, I think this is a topic that needs to be raised repeatedly, making bankers more conscious of it and figuring out what they should do in light of this new regulatory compliance threat. Oh, I totally agree. Redlining is uh, is way up there on the on the high risk list for sure. You know, and some, one of the things I wanted to point out, it's kind of interesting, Len, is when you look at historical data over the last five years relative to enforcement actions, that they've actually declined and specifically to fair lending and redlining risk. However, when you look at the number of uh, uh, the the increase in civil money penalties over the same time period, they've actually mm-hmm. increased, which is kind of interesting because mm. I, that, that's kind of what that what what's that what that suggests typically is that the regulators are really trying to get your attention and they're they're assessing these large penalties and coming after you. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and, and, and so I agree, uh, uh, they, uh, the, 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 the audience needs to tune in to what you're about to say. I'm certainly all ears and I bet our listeners, uh, will be too. So, uh, where do we start, Len? Okay. Well, as I said a few moments ago, there's been an explosion of redlining referrals from the bank regulators to the DOJ as attested to by the assistant attorney general in her Seton Hall speech back in April. But the public knows little about the details because 
Until a case is litigated or a public settlement is announced, the accusations and the details behind them are kept from the public. However, we are aware of a number of these cases and the details behind them because we have been retained to advise bank clients regarding redlining inquiries by examiners. And there's certain aspects of these cases that seem to be common. So I thought we would focus on those common themes and how banks can avoid those pitfalls and prepare for the questions regarding the matter of redlining that may be raised by examiners. Oh, I like that. Let's discuss what these common themes are and then explain what bankers may proactively do to minimize potential redlining acquisitions uh, by the, the uh, examiners. Um, please, uh, what are the factors that, that seem to be common in the situations uh, that you've seen and, and, and those that have been, I guess, I'll call it made public? Well, in almost all cases, banks, and by the way, non-bank lenders too, have been accused of inadequate procedures to identify redlining exposure. In some cases, there's been no monitoring system at all in place. In other cases, systems and procedures were in place, but not implemented, or they were ignored by management. So an immediate priority for every lender should be a review of the systems and procedures to identify and monitor potential redlining situation. But it's not enough just to have the systems and procedures in place to monitor redlining risk. Any review must also evaluate, one, whether those systems are adequate, and two, that they are faithfully being put into practice. Otherwise, they're worthless. Okay, so a review of systems and procedure and practices to monitor potential redlining risk is recommendation number one. What do you have next on the block? Well, again, as I mentioned earlier, the application of the concept of, quote, reasonably expected market areas, end quote, has in several cases I'm aware of been liberally interpreted so that examiners can claim that banks are not doing enough lending in majority minority tracks, even minority tracks that may be well outside and relatively distant from the bank's CRA assessment area. So any redlining monitoring system must determine if a bank's REMA may be different from its CRA assessment areas. Recognizing that REMAs may be very different from CRA assessment areas, a bank should evaluate its situation to determine if there's a basis for a REMA uh, and what it would look like and how it compares to the CRA assessment area and what are the implications for redlining risk for the bank. Yeah, so we'll get into obviously what banks need to do in determining their REMA. My, I guess my immediate thought here recently was uh, uh, that, that uh, was, I'm always concerned when we start talking about compliance, about putting the cart in front of the horse uh, and opening mm -hmm. up Pandora's box. So I, I, I always caution people. I think this is one of those areas where we have to take that leap of faith and move forward with doing an appropriate reamer analysis, even though, as you've indicated, it's not really defined, but we know that the regulators are looking at it. So I think it's imperative that banks take that leap of faith and certainly do some sort of reamer analysis um, uh, altogether mm -hmm. uh, when they're when we're talking about fair lending. Well, you can't put your proverbial head in the sand, hoping that uh, the threat will disappear. Uh, it's there. And so it behooves you to be proactive about this and rather than passive and hope that you'll get through your next uh, fair lending exam. Uh, 
Mm. We know this, that the 2023 fair lending examination procedures described in the fair lending section of the consumer compliance exam manual identifies factors for examiners to consider regarding ARIMA. One is the, you know, how, what is the CRA assessment area for the bank? Two, the location of the bank's branches and listen to this, it's loan production offices. Uh, that's really critical. And I've seen several banks get into a pickle about that. Uh, the third thing to consider is the loan application uh, activity and its geographic dispersion inside the assessment area and outside the assessment area. Are there concentrations of activity going on outside the assessment area that may lead an examiner to conclude that your real market is broader and expanded than your CRA assessment area? Uh, also, look at the bank's marketing campaigns and where they are targeted. That's an important distinction because much of the media and an effort to justify their charges will talk about the uh, audience that's reached by their their uh, various media uh, facilities. And the problem is that they will exaggerate and show you areas that you may not be necessarily interested in, but they're there. And if you have that documentation from the media and an examiner looks at it and says, wow, you, you were uh, expanding your assessment area because this radio station or this TV uh, uh, station or this um, local newspaper has reaches an audience that's way beyond your assessment area that, and you're advertising in it. So that proves that your real market your, is much broader than your assessment area. So you've got to be aware of that. And then of course, uh, any complaints or overt statements that may indicate discrimination on the part of bank personnel are also the, those are the five factors that examiners will look at to determine if your REMA should, is different than your CRA assessment area. Now, I want to reiterate that you'll note that the bank's marketing activities are an explicit factor for REMA consideration, and it's not a factor usually for CRA assessment areas at all. So also, while deposit-taking branches are an important CRA consideration, REMAs will include things like LPOs, any facilities you have outside the assessment area, which indicates that you are marketing in that area, and therefore it's part of your REMA. We had a bank client recently that uh, basically has had a well-defined CRA assessment area for decades, no problems at all, and the examiners challenged them saying that there was an area where they had an LPO that they opened up a year or two ago that is generating volume. And that indicates that the bank is actually marketing in that area. And therefore they expanded the assessment area to include that area. And lo and behold, while they were doing some volume there, it wasn't enough in the minority tracks and to minority borrowers, it created immediate redlining flags for the examiners. So, and finally, of course, in light of the current aggressive application of REMA delineation rules, the, the regulatory consequences of operating an LPO may really impose an obligation on a bank to affirmatively meet the credit needs of the minority communities in those markets, even though the nearest bank depository institute branch may be a thousand miles away. Now, once a bank has determined what his REMA may look like, it then should review and analyze its lending in the minority tracks, as well as its applications and courses of action to minority borrowers. They, in other words, treat it like it's your CRA assessment area, but this is for fair lending purposes. You have to do that thorough analysis to be able to anticipate whether this is going to be a problem. 
Yeah, and I've always found that, uh, especially I, I can speak to your your group, and that is the mapping software. Boy, it's really the, the visual plotting loans, whether it's in, in your assessment area or outside of your assessment area, certainly gives you that that visual, and I I, I, I love it. I think it's a great uh, a great tool, and you provide uh, uh, excellent maps relative to that. But how do examiners review the adequacy of the banks lending in those minority communities? Well, what they do is they'll look at the overall volume of the bank's lending in the REMA, and then they'll look at its market share in the minority tracks and the minority borrowers market, and then compare those numbers to the activity of all the other lenders as well as peer lenders in the REMA. And if a bank's minority market lending falls beneath the penetration rate of other lenders active in the market, the question then becomes, is the underperformance statistically significant. If the results indicate that a statistically significant low rate of lending in the REMA, uh, in the minority community, it usually is the predicate for a referral to the DOJ. Yeah. And, and I'll tell you one other thing that I have seen um, um, in that particular case, um, in those, in those reach out efforts, in those, uh, to, to, you know, to, to the minority tracks, um, goes right back to something that you had mentioned before, and that has to do with marketing. And they, um, what you know, what what level of marketing are they doing outside of their assessment area, but in the mm-hmm. REMA uh, to target minority groups and to say, well, geez, you know, we don't we don't have a branch there, or a depository inst- or a depository taking facility, um, but yet we have a marketing plan and, and marketing efforts that show that we've reached out to those minority tracks. Um, you certainly can see how the regulators are going to take that into account when they're uh, doing their REMA analysis for sure. How does a bank know if it, its results are, are st- statistically significant, Len? Well, statistically significant analysis for redlining employs a complex formula that relies on the market volume data in comparison to the bank's uh, activity itself in the market. Any Consultants should be able to compute the statistical significance of a bank's lending in the REMA. In fact, that's become standard practice on our part now. Whenever we do any consulting regarding fair lending, we will look at uh, what the potential REMA might be, and we do calculate whether the bank's performance is statistically significant and below the standard threshold, which may trigger, again, a referral to the DOJ. Dean, while I think of it, I just want to add one other thought here about this REMA and how it's practiced. Uh, What we have discovered to my surprise and, in fact, horror, I guess you could say, is that the regulators have told us that they typically use a REMA that's no smaller than a metropolitan division or an MSA. And for large banks, you know, uh, that's usually not a problem because they're, they've got thousands of branches and they do include the entire country. But for many community banks, this application of the concept of REMA on a basis that's no smaller than a MSA or MD could be very problematic because it's an unrealistic market for the bank to be expected to serve. But nevertheless, that what's, that's what they're doing. That's what the examiners are doing. I remember asking one of the examiners about this, saying, well, if you have an unrealistic market definition, then you're going to have unrealistic results. And why are you just applying uh, a concept of a REMA to be nothing smaller than an MSA or metropolitan division? And that examiner could not answer that question. 
Uh, they didn't even disagree with me. They just couldn't answer it. It's just the practice that's being done by the different agencies at this point in time. So everyone listening to this broadcast should consider doing a REMA analysis predicated on the entire MSA or the entire Metropolitan Division in which the bank is located, even if it expands beyond its traditional CRA assessment areas, because that's the practice that's being used today by regulators. And it undoubtedly has magnified the number of referrals to the DOJ because, again, unrealistic REMAs mean unrealistic performance analysis. But that's the that's the environment today. We're led by an attorney general who considers redlining to be widely pervasive. Hmm. You're guilty before uh, before the, the jury listens to your case even. So keep in mind, you must anticipate this is going to be a problem in your next exam. You should anticipate it. You should analyze it. You should figure out what the story is. And then you should figure out, well, how are you going to explain to examiners what your, you know, what your results are and why they are inappropriate. And again, there's one other quick thought that comes to my mind as we're talking, and that is the banks that I've seen avoid these problems, even though they might have statistically significantly low results, have been saved by one thing. What is that one thing? It's because they had a proactive outreach effort to the community that was documented. So when examiners saw that, even though the bank might not have been successful in uh, penetrating the minority markets, they were actively trying to do so, and they had the documentation to back it up. That's gotten at least several banks I know of out of the trouble of a potential redlining referral to the DOJ. Yeah, that's I mean certainly critical, especially with the peer comparisons that are happening now, and people get a little confused by that um, when they you know when we when we do it anyway, they you know conduct these types of analysis, and they're saying, well, geez, you know that that's a huge bank, and they have all kinds of branches, and how why are you comparing us to them? Well, it's 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 based on the percentage or the number of reportable mm-hmm. applications on the Hundelar and. You look at right. institutions that are similar, so they have between 15 and 200 percent of, 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 of those uh, similarities as far as the uh, reportable transactions. And that's what's being used. And and I think that that, uh, quite frankly, is 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 has been helpful, not only for institutions to uh, uh, to help with the REMA, but also, um, you know, it's it certainly uh, it's certainly uh, seeing how you how you measure up. In that particular marketplace, um, Dean. Oh. Dean, you just said something really important. I'm glad you said this. Okay. Yeah. yeah. See, when b- banks think about their peers, they're thinking about banks that are their size. But That's as right. you just noted, it's it can be based on the volume of activity inside a bank's market. So theoretically, and in tr- it's true in many cases that some of the biggest banks in the country inside your backyard market are actually considered to be your peers for that market. So B of A, JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, they may be a, a hundred times or a thousand times bigger than your bank, but within your market, their activity might fall within that 50 to 200% threshold mm-hmm. that is a criteria for determining your peers in your market. So don't be surprised when you look and see, wow, why, why are these mega institutions being included as peers that we're being compared to? 
I'm so happy you brought that up, Dean. That yeah. is a, a critical point for bankers to understand. Well, you're welcome. And I think that this podcast has been extremely informative. And in light of the current regulatory approach to redlining, uh, it's also very timely. So I encourage all of our listeners to listen, not only listen, but re-listen uh, to this podcast in light of the current regulatory conditions and the serious implications for all lenders uh, uh, relative to this a new approach, a redlining approach. So uh, thank you for listening today. This is Dean Stockford from M&M Consulting. And this is Len Sizio of Geodata Vision saying, we hope you enjoy today's podcast and we encourage you to let us know topics of interest to you that you would like us to include in future podcasts. Thanks for listening to the Compliance 911 Show. If you like the podcast, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. While you're at it, please give us a like and review to help others find the show. As always, links are in the show notes and you can always find us online at compliance911show.com. Follow M&M Consulting and Geodata Vision on LinkedIn for all the latest news and information on compliance hot topics.